All right. Welcome, everyone, to the Tori Says Show. So today we are going to be talking about parallel construction, but more so star chambers. And it's not, I don't know if many people are familiar with that, uh, which is exactly what we are seeing. I'm going to let you in into an operation. But first, let's just talk about what a siren song is. You know, we know it comes from mythology. We know it comes from Greek mythology, right? Where it's supposed to be used as a way of luring and tempting and ultimately causing harm to someone who gets indulged in the siren song. In modern age, using a siren song can refer to any persuasive argument or offer that is seductive and ultimately deceptive and damaging. For example, you get offered a job and the pay is high, the benefits are amazing, but it turns out to be a scam. <laughs> this is what a siren song pretty much is. You get lured in, you're mesmerized by the idea of something when it's really not that. Now, how is that done? A siren song obviously needs music. It also needs lyrics, but it's 2023. And we've got pictures. And as you know, many corporations have capitalized on the uh, shortening of the attention span of the people. And they have used that to their benefit. So for those that are listening to this as a podcast, um, I will not be playing any music right now. I will be playing a music video with no frequency, no sound, but the lyrics will be on the screen. So... If you'd like to, you can pause the podcast and pull it up on YouTube. It's the music video for a song called Telephone with Lady Gaga and Beyonce. Now, this is very important as you'll understand how siren songs are put together. So there won't be sound for the next eight or so minutes because it's kind of like a movie-wise, uh, movie-type video. So please... Pay attention to the lyrics and the pictures, and I'll be right back. Now, for those of you that have uh, had that recognize this song, you obviously probably heard the lyrics in your head. As you could see throughout that video, there was a lot of product placement. You had Virgin Mobile, Beats, Plenty of Fish, Coke. But there is a lot being said there. Omitting the music and just watching the lyrics, just watching them and following the story is insane. If you actually looked, and I know it was in Spanish because that's the only one that actually had the lyrics with the video. If you actually look, they, they said, hey, when she came out of the jail, if we're going to slaughter the cows, we have to make hamburgers. And so then they went on to murder all these people. Why am I saying this? Siren songs are how they segue messages into the populace. And we've seen that. Everyone's been under a siren song of the media for a very long time. Now, let's visit the story of the Pied Piper. Pied Piper is a famous folk tale. It came out of uh, Germany in the Middle Ages. The story tells him of a mysterious kind of musician. His name, he was known as the Pied Piper. So what they did was they hired him to play 
you know, music to get, well, they hired him to actually get rid of the rats that were infesting their city. So what the Pied Piper did, he used a magical flute to mesmerize the rats of the town and lure them into a nearby river where they drowned. But the townspeople actually refused to pay him for his services. And then the Pied Piper used his music to lead all their children away. Now, the story of the Pied Piper is often interpreted as a cautionary tale about the dangers of greed and the consequences of breaking promises. And the music is seen as a symbol of a seductive power of temptation, which can lead people astray and cause them to act against their own interests and their best interests. There are many versions of this story that the Pied Piper's music also represented the power of art and creativity to bring people together and inspire change, but also enslave them. The Pied Piper is also seen as uh, an outsider, an outsider who has unique talents and a perspective that allows them to see solutions to the problems that others cannot. So it's actually a pretty wicked tale. Now, Operation Pied Piper could be a secret government initiative or a secret initiative of former government employees or not, or some anonymous sources within the Department of Justice that can give a tip. This tip could discover evidence of a secret court operating within the Department of Justice that could be similied to a star chamber. Now, this group of people, part of Operation Pied Piper, could begin to dig deep into the Department of Justice operation and sophisticated techniques to access information and observe witnesses. Team Operation Pied Piper, I guess OPP, right? <laughs> has more evidence of the Star Chamber's existence as it goes into it. Obviously, they would face resistance, pushback, and from powerful officials within the Department of Justice. Because a Star Chamber would be bringing us to a constitutional crisis. What is a Star Chamber, though? A star chamber was a court of law in England that operated between the 15th and 17th century. It was established to deal with cases that were outside the jurisdiction of common law courts, such as uh, cases involving alleged national security, riots, and perjury. The court was named after the stars that were painted on the ceiling of the room where they held their first meeting. It was known for being secretive, tons of secretive proceedings and lack of due process. It operated without a jury and allowed for hearsay evidence and torture to be used against defendants. The court also had the power to impose se several severe punishments, including fines, imprisonment, and execution. Over time, the Star Chamber was associated with the abuses of power and corruption. Allegedly, it was abolished in 1641 during the English Civil War. 
And while many call it a legend of caution, a cautionary tale of these dangers of unchecked power and the importance of protecting individual rights and due process in the justice system, it seems like it's still here. <laughs> in fact, I'm pretty sure it is. We've all seen it ourselves. Chambre de l'Edite. Another version of the Star Chamber that emerged post-Star Chamber. <laughs> in fact, um, Louis XIV of France established a court known as the Chambre de l'Edite or the Chamber of Edict in 1679 uh, post the abolishment of the Star Chamber, but they were one and the same. The court was actually established, get this, to deal with cases involving Protestants who refused to convert to Catholicism. And that was part of Louis XIV's efforts to suppress, uh, you know, the Protestant movement in France. And just like the Star Chamber, the Chambre de l'Edite operated without a jury and allowed for hearsay evidence to be used against defendants. It also had the power to impose severe punishments, confiscation of property, death, and lifelong imprisonment. The court was actually widely criticized because there was no due process. So the Chambre de l'Edite was abolished 100 years later in 1787 after Louis XVI came to power and sought to promote religious tolerance in France. So the legacy of Chambre de l'Edite serves as a reminder of the dangers again of unchecked power. But we've seen this movie play again and again and again in all of history, in many nations. I mean, how many wars have we had due to religious persecution? All siren songs, all masked as something. But as um, we know, in order to have a um, star chamber, chambre de l'édite, you must have hearsay evidence or to construct it. And I published an article on Friday that I had been working on, which shows that the Department of Justice, the FBI, and many other agencies within the United States have been weaponized to do just that, to parallelly construct cases against others. Now, I'm going to share with you an old video about parallel construction and the dangers of its use by the FBI. Take a listen. You of course know what the agencies are doing and put out publicly. What do you see as some of the big picture issues coming up over the horizon when it comes to post-collection use of intelligence information from your seat at the ACLU? Yeah, I mean, first I kind of want to talk about what's the world that I worry about, right? What's the world that the ACLU worries about? Um, and I think when we think about NSA collection, we worry about a world where there's a whole lot of collection. We're not talking about a dozen or a hundred um, emails or transactions a year, but on the order of millions. And we worry about those databases and that information being used in part for domestic criminal enforcement, right? Not to protect national security, um, not to find information about, you know, a, a upcoming potential terrorist threat but in your everyday normal criminal enforcement, in which case 
generally police would be required to go to a neutral judge and get a warrant, demonstrating probable cause that someone has actually um, may commit a crime or has been accused of committing a crime. And we worry about all that happening in a world where even if that information was gained and even if it was used in a criminal court, that person doesn't even know. They don't even know enough to say, look, I think the NSA may have collected this and I'd like to challenge it because I think my rights have been violated. So that's the world that we worry about. Um, and I think I want to talk a little bit about why I think that some of the procedures are inadequate and are leading us closer and closer to this world. Um, and I think the first thing I want to highlight is we've been talking a lot about foreign intelligence. You've heard Becky and Sharon say, look, well, we're, we're only keeping the stuff that has foreign intelligence value, or we're only querying things if we think it's going to return foreign intelligence. Foreign intelligence is an incredibly broad term. Um, it could include, let's say, a journalist overseas communicating with a journalist in the U.S. about perhaps a drone program. It could include communications from human rights organizations about foreign policy. Um, it could include information about you know, everyday citizens abroad who are communicating with their families in the U.S. who may talk about issues surrounding foreign affairs. And so first of all, we're dealing with a situation where we're conceptualizing foreign intelligence I think much broader than the public thinks when they think foreign intelligence, because when they think foreign intelligence, they think stopping terrorist attacks, and that's not what foreign intelligence means in under many of these authorities. The second thing I want to talk about is, okay, well now we have this, this trove of foreign intelligence information, right? And we're going to allow agencies such as the FBI, who also have law enforcement authority, to run queries on it. They're not just running queries in cases where um, they may want to, you know, again, gather information about an uh, upcoming terrorist plot. They're also running these queries or running queries on databases that include this information in your normal criminal case. Um, we don't know how many times because despite many requests, we don't have a sense of how many of those types of searches are performed. Um, but what we do know from the reports is that it may be substantial because that data is commingled with other databases and if I'm an FBI agent and I'm beginning an investigation, I may do a query um, and that query might involve databases that include foreign intelligence information. And then the third layer that we're seeing increasingly come up is, you know, now I'm worried that not only have you collected the information, you've queried it and you want to use it for, you know, in a criminal case, or not, maybe not even a criminal prosecution, maybe to affect something else in my life of, you know, I'm now subject to additional search, or I'm subject to a wiretap, or I don't get an immigration benefit that I've applied to. But just looking at, let's say, criminal prosecution, you know, potentially one of the most damaging out of those three options is we're not seeing people get notice in court of how their information was collected. Um, Section 702, that's one of the, the provisions Becky talked about. Prior to 2013, there was not one defendant who got notice. Now, apparently at some point there was a re-examination um, of DOJ policy, um, and there's been some notice since that, not a lot, but some. We don't know how that notice is being interpreted um, and whether really those provisions that require notice under Section 702 are making sure that everybody who's had information used against them knows that and gets that um, so that they can challenge unconstitutional surveillance. In other contexts, we haven't even seen an acknowledgement from the government that they have an obligation or a duty to provide notice. You know, under Executive Order 12333, if information through the course of that surveillance is ultimately used in a criminal prosecution, we don't know whether the government takes the position that yes, they must disclose that to the defendant who can then challenge it. And you know, I raise these examples to, I think, 
demonstrate the increasing evidence that you know, an authorities that have been developed and have been premised on this idea of we need this information to protect our country against terrorist threats or proliferation and those authorities are increasingly bleeding into everyday general law enforcement activities and there needs to be more reform to pre prevent against that bleed. Thank you. So as you can see, we have a range no roundtable. That was a system failure on my end. So as you can see, uh, the discussion in regards to overcollection of data that I've been talking about for years is one that has been had for a very long time. I've also talked about the Executive Order 13333 before. Now, the reason that I bring this up is that there, in 1994, actually October 25th, 1994, President Bill Clinton signed into enforcement the Communication Assistance for Law Enforcement Act. Basically, the Communications Assistance for Law Enforcement Act was amended and has been amended several times. One of the most significant ones was in 2005 when the FCC issued a ruling that expanded the scope of the act to include broadband internet and voice over the internet protocol, you know, VOIP. That way they can monitor Skype, Zoom, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. Now, this ruling required that providers of such services, such as Facebook, such as Twitter, such as Skype, such as MIRC, well, all and any other platform of communication via the internet had built-in technical capabilities to enable law enforcement agencies to intercept and monitor communications. Again, that happened in 2005, based on a law from 1994. Basically, these amendments to the CALEA Act are supposed to help us ensure that law enforcement agencies are able to carry out electronic surveillance in a manner that is effective and allegedly respectful to our privacy rights. But <laughs> that's not what's happening. See, the CALEA Act was designed to enable them, again, to conduct electronic surveillance. Now, in theory... This act does not impact the Fourth Amendment because it allegedly requires that law enforcement agencies obtain court orders or other legal authorization before they can do anything such as conduct electronic surveillance. But when you see the CALEA Act amongst other executive orders and how do they say them? Um, administrative rules and other laws that have been passed stuffed with pork, this is not the case. The Fourth Amendment protects us against unreasonable searches and seizures. Define unreasonable. Now, the CALEA Act since 1994, so we're talking, it's been a while, over 20, 30 years now. <laughs> it's on the conversation block of, hey, is this actually constitutional? Now, under the CALEA Act, they have access and they have back doors. All they have to show is, oh, I kind of think something's going on, so give me access. But I think we should go back to Congressman Ted Poe's short monologue about FISA courts. It's quite important because he said something that I've introduced you to earlier on in the show. To all people. And darkness by rulers can be trumped by the sunshine of public and an independent judicial system. But, Mr. Speaker, secrecy by a judicial system is a threat to liberty of all free peoples. So, in our country, we have the Constitution. 
and specifically the amendments to the Constitution, protect us as a free people against government, government intrusion, government violation of our privacy. Because government really has no power, it has what we give it when we give up our liberty. And the amendments promote openness of government. You know, there's the Sixth Amendment that talks about a, a public speedy trial uh, where witnesses come forward and people are put on notice of the crime and they're given a jury trial. But the most important part of that amendment is that the trial is public. Seventh Amendment deals with uh, jury trials in civil cases. Of course, the Fifth Amendment talks about the fact that in a trial, a, a person accused doesn't have to testify or produce any evidence against themselves. And then the Fourth Amendment talks about how government is limited on how it can intrude into our homes and our papers. It limits government surveillance. And it's a, it's a philosophy that government must have reasons. It must be a reasonable search based on probable cause and that there must be a warrant drafted under oath describing the place to be searched, the persons and objects to be seized. Now, this just didn't come out of our ancestors' minds because they thought it was a good idea. There are historical reasons for that. Uh, maybe in our public school system we ought to teach more about history and why we do things the way we do. But it goes all the way back to the 1500s in England when England invented this concept of the star chamber. The idea was, well, we're going to be able to prosecute and go after uh, nobles, certain people who are being able to get away with violations of the law. But the courts were made specifically to the secret courts where there was no witnesses, there was no indictment, and a person was forced to testify against themselves. So obviously it was abused. It was abused by the kings of England, primarily Henry VIII, when he went after and fought his opponents by prosecuting them in those secret courts. The United States doesn't have the Star Chamber, but we have the NSA, the National Spy Agency as I call it, and the FISA courts the 21st century descendants of the Star Chamber. The NSA gets the, uh, foreign, is the Foreign Intelligence Surveillance Courts Act and allows those courts under FISA to authorize searches of anyone. Those searches are not based on probable cause. Those areas are not described. It is a general warrant concept that they used in England to search people in England that were political opponents. The spy courts in the United States uh, started probably with a good reason to go after these terrorists that are after us. But they are based on general warrants where they can seize phone records, they can seize credit card bills, utility bills. And we're learning now that they seize NSA with the authorization of these FISA courts, so seize bank records. It's also the judges are far from being independent. They meet in secret just like the Star Chamber did. They can't even keep the records of the proceeding. Those are turned back over to the government. There are no witnesses present, just like in the Star Chamber. There's no lawyers present for anybody, just like in the Star Chamber. You know, these FISA courts should be protecting American citizens, should be following the Constitution. They are supposed to act as the independent power between government and the people. But they're not doing that. I call them the spy search and seizure courts because they are operating in the darkness of tyranny. We don't know what they're doing. They allow the NSA 
to seize and violate the privacy of Americans in violation of the Constitution by seizing people's records under general warrant. A general warrant is the idea that we know there's a bad guy in the area, so we want to search the whole area of town for the bad guy. Can't do that. I used to be a judge. You've got to name the house, the specific area, the probable cause it's got to be sworn to, and the specific location of what you want to search and what you want to seize, or it's a violation of the Constitution. The spy courts, the NSA courts, the star chamber courts need to be revisited. It's time to shine sunshine on the FISA courts and the spying of the NSA. The NSA and the FISA court, star chamber courts have shut down the Constitution. Now it's time to shut down the unlawful surveillance and intelligence gathering by these courts on American citizens. And that's just the way it is. I yield back. So I don't know if any of you knew, but the FISA courts were a big deal. Parallel construction is a big deal. And for you guys to understand the the breadth of what was discovered in regards to how they went after President Trump just now with Mar-a-Lago and the lawsuits that are happening in New York, in Georgia, and outside of those vicinities, right, is with this abuse of power. There are star chambers. There are a lot of people with FISA warrants. I'm one of them. And they look at everything. And right now, they're under scrutiny. I mean, remember, Judge Collier resigned after she had initially given a FISA warrant in 2016, weeks after they were reprimanded for abuse of 702 over collections in September of 2016. Everything they do is under <laughs> the guise of this chambre de l'édite, right? This is it. This is the star chamber. And what if there was a court outside of the FISA court where they have informal discussions? Well, that exists too. Every state has something called like a joint law enforcement commission or something like that. Every state has it. Not a lot of people know about this. This is where your attorney general, uh, Supreme Court justices, of your state, law enforcement sheriffs, Bureau of Criminal Investigation, some FBI representatives, and maybe some local official of some county or city, they come together and discuss criminal investigations or what they need to do so they can work together. That is where the minutes of these, you know, outside discussions happen. If you guys remember when I was gauging to see the whole point of Dominion, right, and having dropped lawsuits, one thing I noticed is that with the first one that I dropped, it was actually put in the hands of a judge that had arrested someone that um, was allegedly a whistleblower, and they had no evidence they were a whistleblower. But instead, they created a parallel construction case. Meaning they knew that the person had the capabilities, they they spoke those languages, they knew how to uh, maneuver in technology because the person was formally trained by them. They were open with those records. And, huh. and there we go. That person was rolled up. They invented a case with nothing because they alleged that that was it. They just needed the person in a box so that that way they can get them to sing. Now, this is a video from the NACDL, and I want you guys 
to listen. This is the ASL, uh, the ACLU National Security Project. This was over four years ago. These were the discussions. Remember, over four years ago, we were having discussions on parallel construction. We saw that happening right in front of us with the dossier and with a lot of other things. Take a pause. Right now, if you remember, a few years ago, Michael Avenatti was being thumped by Pillsbury Doughboy, Brian Stetler, to be president. He and Mike Garagos were caught, Mark Garagos, were caught on audio trying to blackmail a client. And guess who's a commentator and has an agreement with CNN once again? Yes, that's right. Mark Garagos. Look at the people that they're putting on your screen. They took a hiatus and then they bring them back. Because like Hillary Clinton always says, everyone forgets. Do you think that those that are mesmerized by the siren song actually pay attention to who these people are? Absolutely not. Now enjoy this. You just might get a better plea offer. You might get the charges dismissed altogether. Um, and we, again, we point to government documents that say this. You could get your case dropped if they don't want to reveal whatever's on the other side of that wall that parallel construction is supposed to create. Um, I have also seen arguments where attorneys themselves say that they can't be effective if they don't know what the underlying investigative method was, that they can't be effective in challenging this and, and mounting the case. And so without weighing in on the merits of that, I've seen people make an, an ineffective assistance of counsel argument there. What could the government be hiding? Potentially anything. And this is where I want to say we should not just be focusing on the things that were the subject of the Reuters reporting, this idea that there could be NSA programs and big surveillance databases. They could be hiding human source. They could be hiding seriously anything. And so I think it's important not just to think that if you don't believe your case could involve intelligence surveillance and therefore there couldn't have been parallel construction. They could conceal anything. Having said that, um, in our report, we document the, the DEA Special Operations Division. The Special Operations Division is a group of agencies, both domestic and foreign, uh, includes Canada and the UK as well, uh, that basically facilitates a tip and lead system. They use intelligence data uh, to send out tips to local law enforcement, and those tips have been scrubbed of mentions of whatever the classified source is. Um, and it facilitates this whole system. So if you ever need to argue that the SOD is, is real or talk about what it is, again, this is all in our report. I, I want to see if we're doing in time. Okay. So some quotes from our report. You may get pushback from the prosecution saying, you're just speculating, you know, talking about this whole parallel construction thing. Yeah, internet sources have reported it, but this is not real or we're not going to admit that it's real. Um, we have quotes from a former SOD, DEA Special Operations Division attorney, saying things like, when law enforcement finds 20 kilos of drugs in a, in a vehicle during a stop, the chances of that being random are unlikely in my opinion. Uh, we quote a federal prosecutor saying, does it bother me a little? Yeah, but if it's, if it's gonna stop 100 keys from getting on the street, it's okay by me. I didn't make the rules, I just play by them. This is on the record, it's in our report. Uh, this is not in the report because I found it belatedly, but a DHS task force official testified before Congress last year that when information provided by the intelligence agencies leads to drug interdictions, parallel construction, and I quote, can be conducted before Homeland Security Investigations takes over the case. And he says parallel construction, you can get the video clip. Um, the DOJ Inspector General is currently, has been since 2013, doing an investigation of this, of both the use of subpoenas to create potentially vast call records databases, but they are also looking into, and I quote, parallel construction, the potential use of parallel construction to conceal those large secret data sets. 
So again, this is if you get pushback on whether this practice is real. Um, Ash is going to go more into intelligence surveillance. All I will say very briefly is that I think people tend to focus in on either call records databases or they focus in on FISA, the Foreign Intelligence Surveillance Act, because we know relatively more about it. But there is a huge, huge secret surveillance authority that many people aren't familiar with and it doesn't tend to get talked about, and that's Executive Order 12333. Executive Order 12333 issued in 1981 uh, under the Reagan administration, and it basically lets the U.S. intelligence agencies capture any data they want as long as they're doing it outside U.S. borders and they're not deliberately targeting a known U.S. person, meaning a U.S. citizen um, or a, a green card holder. So it's important not to, if you think that there might be a secret kind of data-related tip in your case, please do approach people like us because we might be able to help you craft your motion to be sure that you're getting at all the potential laws or sources that could be underlying that and not fixating on, say, FISA in a way the government could just easily sort of swat away. So I'm going to go ahead and turn it over to Ash. Thanks. I'm going to go back a slide just to cover a few of the others. Hi, so my name is Ashley Gorski. I'm a staff attorney in the ACLU's National Security Project, where I focus primarily on challenges to NSA surveillance in both the civil and criminal contexts. Um, today, I'm going to provide a little background on foreign intelligence surveillance authorities because this is an arena in which parallel construction and related practices like withholding notice are endemic. So a very quick primer, uh, in 1978, Congress enacted the Foreign Intelligence Surveillance Act to govern most foreign intelligence surveillance that takes place on U.S. soil. And in 2008, Congress enacted amendments to that act, but what's called traditional FISA is still in play, uh, and the government still relies on it when it's targeting a U.S. person on U.S. soil for foreign intelligence surveillance. And obtaining a traditional FISA order bears some similarities to obtaining a wiretap or a search warrant, but FISA surveillance is considerably more permissive, and the thresholds for obtaining that order are lower. Uh, to obtain that order, fundamentally, the government needs to show that the target is a foreign power or an agent of a foreign power, and it doesn't require any evidence of criminal activity or any showing that there's probable cause to believe that the evidence that's acquired will relate to criminal activity. Now, let's think about that for a second. Hunter Biden's laptop, could that be parallel construction? I mean, it could if it was law enforcement that obtained the laptop or maybe former law enforcement or maybe former agency or maybe former spooks or spies that maybe convinced this man, where is he by the way, to submit his laptop. Because there is evidence that there were people in elected office, including the former sitting vice president and former president Barack Hussein Obama that were acting as foreign agents. Now, while there may be, indeed FISA warrants on people that have been trying to expose this or there have been a chambre de l'edite or star chambers held to issue national security letters ooh, ooh, ooh. the one thing about FISA courts and the way the law is constructed is that they are so compartmentalized that even the department of justice may not be aware itself or the director of the fbi may not make it known because either one, they don't know, or two, they're adhering to their oath to keep their mouth shut about other possible FISA warrants. Remember when I was talking about things that were crimes on the Hunter Biden laptop, 
we discussed, you know, obviously at first glance, there's child issues, right? And criminal sexual deviant acts, drug use, ob- obtaining a weapon in a firearm without being qualified and circumventing the process of background checks, right? But I also mentioned how we had people within the State Department ushering documents for uh, diplomats of foreign nations and assisting them, you know, kind of like the way QIA was working in Qatar with Hunter Biden to usher documents or how Blinken, who is now at the State Department, I mean, like I said, I don't know how Tony still has a job, considering he should be considered a foreign agent, or the fact that Little Miss Disinformation Broadway singer is now part of a disinformation organization that is international and has registered as a foreign agent. So... If they have FISA warrants and they've been abusing that and using their little star chamber things to put out their national security letters, do you not think that there may be a FISA warrant on all of these individuals? I mean, they did have FISA warrant on a sitting president. No, they didn't. Well, 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 well. Maybe the FBI director is adhering to their oath. You don't know that. But allow them to elaborate a little bit on this, because these are indeed the experts. And if there's a case being built, well. So it's really a showing about the status of the individual, not the evidence. Uh, As I mentioned in 2008, Congress enacted amendments to FISA, and those are embodied in Section 702. And these substantially altered the FISA regime by authorizing, for the first time, warrantless surveillance on U.S. soil certain kinds of warrantless surveillance on U.S. soil. Under 702, the FBI, the NSA, and the CIA can intercept Americans' international communications without any individualized court orders, without going to the FISC um, on an individualized basis, and without even an executive branch finding of probable cause that the target is a foreign power or an agent of a foreign power. Instead, the statute permits surveillance when two primary criteria are satisfied. First, the analyst reviewing the issue has to believe that the target of the surveillance is a non-U.S. person located abroad. It's a pretty low threshold. And second, that a significant purpose of the surveillance is to acquire foreign intelligence information, which is broadly defined to encompass even information that just bears on the foreign affairs of the United States. Americans who communicate with the government's targets, and there are more than 125,000 targets, are swept up in this warrantless surveillance in large numbers. And although the targets are non-U.S. persons abroad, analysts throughout the country routinely search their databases of 702 acquired information using identifiers associated with U.S. persons in a patent end run around the warrant requirement. And these backdoor searches are deeply controversial, and uh, there's yet to be a federal court ruling squarely addressing them. Um, turning briefly to the issue of you know, whether it's worth raising these issues in your case at all. FISA surveillance, you know, aspects of this have been upheld as constitutional um, over the years, but your case could still present novel questions, uh, particularly with respect to uh, searches of digital devices. 
And 702 surveillance has been upheld. Certain kinds of the surveillance have been upheld in district courts and in one circuit court opinion. But the circuit court opinion was very widely condemned as poorly reasoned. Um, and there are a lot of reasons to believe that there are still inroads to be made here. So um, 702 is something that could definitely be worth raising in your case. Um, Executive Order 12333, Sarah touched on that briefly. Um, I would just add that you know, in today's world, Americans' communications are increasingly sent abroad, routed abroad, and stored abroad, where they are subject to bulk surveillance under this authority, and that the authority and associated rules expressly permit the government to engage in bulk surveillance when it's operating abroad. Um, just a few very quick examples of the scope of this collection, which is staggering. The NSA has used 1233 to acquire more than 5 billion cell phone location records per day from around the world, hundreds of millions of address books and contact lists each year from email accounts and messaging records, messaging accounts. Keep in mind, this is from four years ago, the ACLU that's allegedly liberal, you know, they, they stain them so no one listens, but this is it. For example, Tori, how do you have a FISA warrant? Well, obviously I have communications with people that are abroad. They know that. I have family that's, that are not U.S. persons that I speak to that are overseas. That's it. That's all they need. One phone call to a friend. One phone call to someone. Anything. Let's pretend President Trump called one of his properties in Scotland and spoke to a non-U.S. person that was a receptionist. <laughs> exactly. They could say, well, we think that receptionist may be a hostile threat. There we go. Now, on an individual basis, they've got a FISA warrant ready. See, a FISA goes both ways. You may have control of one FISA court, but there are many more. And as we saw over the weekend, we had a Supreme Court justice cry out, I know the leaker. They interviewed all of these staffers and didn't find them. <laughs> Why would the Supreme Court justice say that, not say, here's the leaker? There's only one reason, that the leaker may be another Supreme Court justice. There's a lot of tension going on right now in the Supreme Court. And who is the one that's in charge of the FISA courts? While many have tainted many differently and wrongly, I hope you're paying attention. Now, we need to listen to a few more minutes of this because I can sit here and talk to you about it, but I think coming from those that are experts is important. They're telling you why they're monitoring your communications. They're telling you how they're doing it allegedly legally. They're telling you everything you need to know because as I've said before, we already have everything we need. Excuse me. It has also used this authority to record every single phone call within, into, and out of at least two countries. And it's used this authority to hack into the data links between Google and Yahoo's data centers abroad. So deeply problematic, ripe for constitutional challenge. Um, I'm going to avoid getting into the weeds on the remaining three authorities on the slide. They pertain to the collection of business records, financial records, communications metadata. Um, I, I would note that there have been indications that the government is still using national security letters, which are like subpoenas with a gag order attached, to acquire cell site location information, which Post Carpenter um, 
it was questionable before and is even more questionable now. So that's the kind of issue that could be worth raising depending on the facts of your case. I just wanted to insert, if, if you notice when she was talking, she said that they're collecting all this data, all these text messages, all these pictures through social media companies, but here's how law enforcement is sneaky. They don't have to use their warrant or their FBI muscle to do it. They just, air quote, buy the data from others, almost like they bought the data from private companies, consumer companies, and gave you 2,000 mules. If I have a quarter million dollars and can purchase data sets and all your phone pings and track you down and get all this information myself without being law enforcement, just imagine how much access law enforcement has. I want you to digest what I just told you. If I can purchase the data from a private company, for all cell phones that are around my apartment, for example, and have your device ID. With your device ID and your device pinging, I can track you down and I can follow every move you make. I also have your face because I will get the CCTV camera footage. I can pull it all. Again, I want you to digest what I am telling you. And another note, she mentioned national security letters because I can tell you that a national security letter was used in the case against President Trump, in the case of obtaining a warrant to raid Mar-a-Lago. So how do you find out if parallel construction was used in your case or if these, um, these particular authorities were used in your case? The government sometimes provides notice of FISA surveillance. Um, the, it's statutorily required to do so when it intends to use information that it obtained or derived from FISA surveillance or searches against a defendant, and the defendant was subject to that surveillance. However, there are real questions about how the government has interpreted its notice obligation, and in particular the term derived. For five years after Section 702 was enacted, the government failed to provide notice to any defendant, and it was only after the Solicitor General had represented to the Supreme Court in a civil case that defendants were receiving notice under the statute, and that's why civil plaintiffs didn't need standing to challenge the statute, that it, the Solicitor General became aware of the fact that DOJ hadn't provided notice to anyone, and that resulted in a reevaluation of DOJ's notice policies. Um, after that, there were um, some notices, retroactive notices. Uh, the notices have mostly dried up, and th that again raises questions about how the government is interpreting the term derived in the scope of its notice obligations. So FISA can be a source of notice, but not reliably. Often, uh, the government does not disclose all the surveillance that it's used in its investigation. That's why we're here and talking about this. So what do you look for? What's useful? Uh, in what circumstances might you want to consider bringing a motion for notice and disclosure of surveillance-related materials? Um, if the indications of surveillance in government filings and discovery suggest that foreign intelligence surveillance may be afoot, or if there are other indications of surveillance, um, it may be worth bringing a motion. If there are communications with individuals overseas, international travel by your client, or if, in general, the origins of the investigation are murky, 
Um, I've seen uh, government filings in which there is some detail about how certain communications were acquired and utter silence as to how other communications were acquired, just the use of the passive voice. When there's that kind of discrepancy, that's something to keep in mind and consider in evaluating how to proceed. Uh, and then finally, SEPA filings by the government. Classified Information Procedures Act filings by the government can uh, be an indication of foreign intelligence surveillance, and I'll discuss those more in just a moment. So if you believe that uh, there is undisclosed surveillance in your case, there are options. You can file a motion for notice and disclosure of surveillance-related materials. Some of the available grounds include Federal Rule of Criminal Procedure 16, the Fourth and Fifth Amendments, which guarantee a meaningful opportunity to seek suppression. I'd also note that in the Fifth and Ninth Circuits, um, there's good case law saying that Brady extends to material that could affect the outcome of a suppression hearing. So that would be something to raise as well. Um, 3504 is a statute that requires the government to provide notice if the defendant makes a colorable showing that the evidence has been, uh, was obtained through unlawful surveillance. So I have experience with that. Allow me to elaborate. So when I was exposing the Chinese purchasing land, the trafficking, and the horrendous crimes committed in the state of North Dakota in general, and I was a thorn in them, they deployed unlawful surveillance against me. They actually sent out something called an administrative subpoena. It was like a secret subpoena. It was a power that was, that's not really lawful. It was kind of arbitrary. And so there was surveillance. They were surveilling me without having the right to surveil me. And here's the thing. They sent out these letters to anything, to family, to friends, to educational institutions, former employers, government agencies, you name it, they sent it, even medical facilities and banking. So I also had a violation of FINRA, but, you know, I digress. I speak to this from a point of privilege that I was on the receiving end. And so what they did was they had all this, and I remember I was defending myself and I was like, but they already, why are they asking me to answer these when they have sent out secret subpoenas to people? The judge laughed at me and said, that's not possible. So I thought to myself, all right, how am I going to fix this? So what did I do? I used exactly what Miss Ashley just said. I asked the bank, hey, have you provided information of my, have you provided all my banking details through a secret subpoena that I wasn't aware of? Well, astoundingly, they had to respond. And they gave me the letter that they received, which said, don't tell her that we're asking for this. <laughs> See, there are laws that compelled them to do so. See, under the Foreign Surveillance Act, and uh, obviously that is for domestic, international terrorism, national security, you name it, right? There's no general requirement for the government to provide notice to an individual that they are subject of surveillance under FISA warrant. However, there are circumstances that notice is required. One circumstance is when the government intends to use the evidence obtained in FISA surveillance in a criminal proceeding. Ding, ding. So let's say, uh, you know, obviously an NSL or an administrative subpoena like the attorney general used against me, right, would have been done. He would have had to provide me notice if the information he collected 
for himself or another agency was to be used in a criminal proceeding. Hence, every single time I said, hey, you're like citing things that are criminal. Can we go to criminal court? Like I asked for that multiple times and they kept refusing. Why? Because they conducted illegal surveillance. I was not notified. They were just doing it. They got caught. So they're stuck. So anything they collected illegally can never be used. Number one. Number two, they usually use those tactics against people that they cannot bring criminal charges against because they might be people of national interest or prosecuting them would open up a very big can of worms. So let's just pretend we don't know them, right? It's like, let's say that Edward Snowden released all that information and they all play dumb. Like, we don't know who that guy is. He's crazy. He never worked for us. Would Edward Snowden be um, on the run? Would they have made a movie? No. They probably would have killed him if he wasn't out in the open. They would have eliminated him. They would have traced and known what he may have that cause, could cause damage. And for them, Edward Snowden would have been a simple blip in the system. Oops, the plane fell. Oops, uh, there was a riot in, you know, stray bullet. Oops, right? They could do that. They could have done that. But Edward Snowden knew that. And this is why he left and made a stunt over it to protect himself. So what are the circumstances again? that um, FISA warrants should be disclosed. Another circumstance is when such notice is required when the government intends to use the information obtained through the FISA surveillance in a proceeding that affects the rights of the target of the surveillance. For example, if the government intends to use a FISA-derived information in um, a deportation hearing, it may be required to provide notice to the target of that surveillance. So it'll be like, listen, Jose, we have a FISA warrant on you and anything we collect on that will be used against you in a court of law to deport your ass. So they have to tell you these things. Or, hey, President Trump, we have a FISA warrant on you. We intend to use the evidence obtained through this FISA surveillance in a criminal proceeding. And, um, you know, we're just letting you know. Now, if all of these FISA warrants they have, get this, have not, well, the FISA, there was no notification, then the question lies, can they use the information they collect through the FISA warrant for criminal charges? Well, 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 here's where Parallel Construction says, hey, how you doing? My name is Parallel Construction. Let's have a conversation. So what is Parallel Construction? In parallel construction, and you know what? I can't believe I didn't do a show like this and I didn't walk, well, I kind of talked about it, but never used it. And I apologize for that because I was like through the Twitter space, someone was, I was like, oh my gosh, I've never done a show. So what is it? It's when law enforcement, right, practices, well, illegal practice of creating new alternative or false evidence trail in a criminal investigation to conceal the origin, the source of evidence from the defense, the public, and sometimes even the court. The technique usually involves obtaining information or evidence through methods that would not be admissible in court, kind of like, I don't know, honeypots or illegal warrants or FISA warrants without notifying you that you're under FISA warrants, such as warrantless searches, illegal surveillance, right? 
So law enforcement officers then use the information that they obtained illegally to launch a legitimate investigation and construct separate evidence paper trail that is supported by lawful means. So let's say that they were illegally surveilling President Trump because he called, I don't know, someone, um, you know, in Scotland, a receptionist at his, you know, uh, property and you know, they had obtained information that, oh, you know what? Oh, snap. You know, I don't know. He brought the soccer ball through there and, oh, that's a big deal. Now we found this illegally. So now we're going to dovetail it through the receptionist. And since the ball was shipped with FedEx from Helsinki to Scotland to America, now we can legally introduce that because of, I don't know, the nationality of the ball. So basically they take the evidence first and then once they have something they can hook onto, how do we build it out? How do we falsify it? How do we make it bigger than it is? How do we make it look criminal, right? They're like, okay, we can get hooked this way. So let's get a warrant and let's get it done. Now, that's how parallel construction works. Like, let's pretend, let's go once upon a time, let's just make a fake story. Once upon a time, if the FBI wanted to arrest a former president for exposing their director's crimes, they would need to gather evidence of criminal activity on the part of the former president. The evidence could include recordings of conversations or emails that show the president directing the release of sensitive or classified information, financial records that demonstrate a pattern of corruption or bribery or campaign you know, issues or witness testimony or obstruction of justice, anything that corroborates the president's involvement with illegal activities, or maybe we can get, you know, a child groomer on stage with him and they could say, oh my gosh, look, he, you know, worked with this child girl. Oh my gosh, he worked with the people that were funneling all this cryptocurrency. Oh my gosh, he worked, you get it. So then once the FBI has gathered sufficient evidence, then they would need to obtain a warrant for the former president's arrest from a judge. The warrant would need to specify charges against the former president and the evidence supporting those charges. The FBI would then arrest the former president and bring him before a court to face trial. It's worth noting that in order to do that, they'd have to have the evidence first, get a warrant for search and seizure to match the evidence that they need to put in front of the judge to get the warrant. And parallel construction is illegal because it involves unlawful and unconstitutional methods to obtain evidence using illegal surveillance and warrantless searches. This is a big blow. You know, we don't, I've said this before, the Fourth Amendment arguments, they have not been argued correctly in a court of law or at the Supreme Court. They have not been. Hence why I'm waiting for North Dakota to come at me. Do you see? Because once, this is why I allow that state to come to me. One thing is, is that state cannot bring, well, they can bring a case against me, which would be fantastic, because then we can bring the Fourth Amendment warrantless surveillance and then expose more crimes. Have you noticed? They know where I am. Why haven't they come? No one's paying attention. We must always be able to distinguish between what's lawful and unlawful especially when it comes to the use of parallel construction and, you know, their little star chamber courts. Having said that, let her finish up this thought before we move into an actual case with the DEA so you can understand how this works. And finally, FISA's notice provisions also um, 
require disclosure in limited circumstances. Unfortunately, they have not yet, defendants have raised this issue, and because of the way the statute is written and the way that courts have construed it, um, no defendant has received disclosure of a FISA application or order to date. There's one district court that ordered it, and uh, it was reversed on appeal. So coming back to the Classified Information Procedures Act, in your motion for notice and disclosure, it's worth preemptively addressing SEPA. This is a statute that was enacted in 1980, and it governs um, the handling of classified information in criminal proceedings. And the government has used SEPA historically, and is doing so today, in ways that are designed to allow it to conceal the use of controversial surveillance authorities. Under SEPA Section 4, it has argued uh, to courts on an ex parte basis that various information should not be made available to a defendant because it falls within an exception to the fruit of the poisonous tree doctrine. Of course, issues like attenuation, like independent sort, independent source, inevitable discovery, these exceptions should be litigated in adversarial context, not in ex parte proceedings. But the government is able to use SEPA Section 4 procedures to argue that this material shouldn't be disclosed to the defendant at all, despite the fact that SEPA is not supposed to put defendants in a worse position than they would otherwise be in a case that didn't involve classified information. So it's worth saying at the outset that the government should not be permitted to use SEPA in this manner. And a couple of examples, um, one is the DOJ Inspector Report, Inspector General Report on Stellar Wind, which was President Bush's warrantless wiretapping program. Um, there's an excerpt that I included in the materials for this panel. And uh, that report goes on at length about how the government used SEPA to mask Bush's use of warrantless wiretapping. Um, just a quick quote, um, the government SEPA submissions argued that information collected by the NSA was too attenuated from the trial evidence to merit a review of the means by which the intelligence information was gathered. And the inspector general there concluded that DOJ had failed to satisfy its ethical obligations to disclose certain information about stellar wind to defendants. Uh, that report also describes how DOJ tried to hide this information from the FISA court and one DOJ official said, in essence, they couldn't possibly scrub all of the tips from Stellar Wind from FISA applications because those tips were like salt in soup. Once it's there, it just can't be extracted. Um, so I think that that's a helpful way to think about how the government at least is thinking about tips and the obligations associated with merely providing a tip that's derived from controversial surveillance authorities. Uh, the second example is the DEA slides that Sarah mentioned earlier and are also included with the materials for this panel. Um, those elaborate a little bit on SEPA and go into that DEA case that I want to show you because you'll understand exactly what happened uh, to what has been happening. So the Classified Information Procedures Act, SEPA, is a federal law that was enacted in 1980. And it set out the procedures for handling of classified information in alleged criminal cases. This is a very important, uh, you know, moment in time for uh, the Fourth Amendment. It's actually quite sad. That was the beginning of the death of the Fourth Amendment. The purpose of the act was to balance the defendant's right to a fair trial with the government's need to protect classified information from unauthorized disclosure. 
Under SEPA, the government is required to provide the defense with notice of any classified information that it intends to use at a trial. The defense can then request access to that information and seek permission to use it in their case. If the government objects to the disclosure of the classified information, the court will then hold a hearing to determine whether the information is relevant and necessary to the defense and whether its disclosure would harm national security. Well, let's unpack that for a second. So in other words, the government will say, hey, I'm using stuff that's black budget. I'm going to use it against you in court. And I'm going to nail you for OPSEC, for violations, yada, yada, yada. So then you come in with your attorney and say, all right, well, I want that information too. So I can use it in my defense. So bring it. You want to talk black ops? Let's go. Give it to me. And then the government says, uh-uh, no, I'm not giving it to you. Forget it. And then it's like, judge, we can't give it to them because it's going to expose more of the project and it'll cause harm to national security. So basically, this allows them to use information. This is how they protect their black budgets. I would like you to pay attention. So <laughs> they would have one defendant that is going to be um, attempted to be charged and locked up and thrown away the key based on black budget operations. But then the defendant isn't allowed to talk about those black budget operations. So they just have to sit there and say, well, I'm kind of screwed. So now under SEPA, even though they're required to let you know, hey, we're going to be using this, they're not required right, to give it to you. So it also provides the use of substitute information in some of classified information in certain circumstances where the disclosure of full information would be harmful to national security. So they could say, here's a document. Uh, Joe Schmo worked in this black operations project. And so they have obstructed justice by utilizing that information. So the judge says, all right, well, let me see it. Judge sees it in chambers. Ah, oh, damn, this is like taking over a country. Huh? We can't give that to the defense because then that would be public because they have to defend themselves. So let's keep it quiet. So then they go, hey, Joe Schmo, tough noogies. Here it is. Here's your document of what they're charging you. The and if what and or about everything else is redacted. Enjoy the show. And then you're screwed. So overall, <laughs> in one sense, SEPA is supposed to protect highly classified information and projects, right? But it also, well, it's supposed to be in place to provide special security procedures for the handling of extremely classified information during the courses of a trial. It's important that they, there needs to be a balance of protecting classified information, but also uh, ensuring that the defendants have a fair trial. But as mentioned in that video under SEPA Section 4, a court may authorize that the government withhold classified information from the defendant and the public if it finds that that disclosure, get this, and it spells it out, would be harmful to national security. But there's only one exception. It's commonly referred to as state secrets privilege. So SSP, that is where the majority of the money that they call black budget is dumped, right? State secret privilege is an evidentiary rule that allows the government to prevent the disclosure of sensitive national security information in court proceedings, even if that information is relative to the case. So the privilege is based on the idea that 
The information is so sensitive that disclosure would harm national security interests. And that also means domestic tranquility. Hmm? And that protecting those interests takes precedence over the rights of an American citizen on trial. Digest that for a second. The nation might go into turmoil and we might be attacked and we might be exposed and the people will be upset with us. Therefore, we can't pr produce this information. So, you know, Joe Schmo's rights mean nothing in comparison to the pain that our nation shall suffer. So in order to invoke the state secrets privilege, the government must provide the court with a detailed explanation of the information it seeks to protect how its disclosure would harm national security. And one of the main things that it would show, I mean, obviously this isn't, um, obviously it's a no-brainer when we're talking about assets that are placed overseas or whatever. But the key point here is using domestic tranquility as a defense. I mean, the prosecution will tell the judge, hey, if the people find this out, right, then we're all, all screwed. They're going to know that we're duping them. Uh, you know, we're going to have riots. This is going to cost billions of dollars in damage. They're going to burn the place down. They're going to be dragging us out onto the street by our hair, beating us, hanging us. It'll be turmoil. It'll be chaos. And Joe says, all right, then Joe Schmo has no rights then. No fair trial for him because protecting the government is key. And usually the court does determine that the information is properly classified and that its disclosure would be harmful to national security. And it will allow the government to withhold that information from Joe Schmo and the public. That's a big problem. That was actually signed into law by Jimmy Carter. And you know who actually introduced it? It was introduced in the, it was introduced in the Senate by Senator Birch Bay in 1979. Now, she mentioned Stellar Winds wireless tapping program. And remember the Stellar Winds that was in conversation a couple years ago? Well, for those of you that don't know, Stellar Wind was a secret surveillance program that was launched by the NSA, uh, you know, under the whole 9-11 shebang, right? The program actually involved warrantless surveillance of electronic communications, including phone calls, emails, made by U.S. citizens and others in the United States as part of the government's effort to identify and prevent future terrorist attacks. Now, Stellar Wind was operating under the authority of President Bush's surveillance program, which was authorized by President Bush shortly after the 9-11 attacks. The program was initially designed to like intercept communications between individuals in the U.S. and suspected terrorists overseas. However, that was a lie. It was revealed that the actual program had been used to collect data on millions of Americans who were not suspect of any wrongdoing. <laughs> you mean data feeding. Now, Stellar Wind involved the interception and collection of data from the internet and, you know, your telephone communications through a variety of methods, including wiretaps, data mining, and other surveillance techniques. So that was their covert operation, which quickly went overt. Overt is the kiss of life to any data mining and any control operation. I think that was also demonstrated in Enjoy the Show. Because when private consumer companies provide you an agreement every time you buy their phone and you agree to it, well, then, you know, the government's not really doing it under the guise of I'm not, you know, I'm just getting it from T-Mobile. I'm just getting it from Facebook. They're supposed to give it to us and it's open. They're on the LEO. There's an LEO site where you sign in. You can actually just access 
of things. You just put in a request, there's special emails, and it's game over. Now, this program is extremely controversial from the outset, right? Because it was conducted without warrants, no court approvals, you know, and it, it was a complete and utter violation of the Fourth Amendment of the U.S. Constitution that protects every single U.S. citizen from unreasonable search and seizures. In fact, it was in 2005 that the New York Times revealed the existence of the program, which was talked about and then forgotten about. And everyone's like, oh, well, you know, the feds, look, it's not the feds, it's the NSA, right? And there, and even though several lawsuits were filed challenging the legality of the program, in 2007, the Bush administration modified the program to include greater oversight and judicial review, allegedly. So in 2008, huh, they passed the FISA Amendment Act, which authorized the government to conduct warrantless surveillance in certain circumstances, but also imposed some limitations. But that's why we were reading stellar winds, right? Because nothing's happening. You know, it's 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 quite interesting, you know, because all these star chamber courts, <laughs> Pfizer surveillance courts, they're very highly compartmentalized. And, you know, it would be quite easy for them not to see it happening. So let's see, where's the DEA one? There's a short clip, and then I'm going to show you a deep dive on it. The operative unit of the Drug Enforcement Administration is training its agents to cover up how it gets information used to launch investigations of Americans. The technique for concealing the information is called parallel construction. Here's how it sometimes works. A drug dealer wants to move narcotics, weapons, or cash in the United States. An informant, or perhaps an undercover agent, learns of the plans and alerts the secretive DEA unit called the Special Operations Division. The intelligence could also come from an NSA wiretap or electronic intercept. The Special Operations Division tells local or state police that they need to stop a certain truck at a certain place and time. Local police do that in a way that looks like a routine traffic stop but a drug-sniffing dog is brought to the scene. If police find drugs, they arrest the driver. If the case goes to trial, cops know they can never say where the intel came from. They're under direct orders to not disclose it. Instead, they might say the investigation began with a routine traffic stop, a plausible story that creates a new investigative trail that won't lead back to the secret source. That's the parallel construction. What concerns some former prosecutors and judges is that by hiding the origin of the investigation, the DEA could be hiding evidence from the people arrested. This might jeopardize their constitutional right to a fair trial. So there are a lot of people aware of these tactics, right? Everyone is pretty much. So <laughs> let's see what the basic problems are with parallel construction. And again, here we are. This is from a little while ago from the um, ACLU's kind of NACDL webinar where they're discussing the problems with parallel construction. Because if you want to find out what has been happening for the past six years and what is going on in the background, this is key to understand it. Researching this report, we didn't find very many valiant defenders of this practice. Um, but some basic problems and things that you can raise, for example, in motions, if you're making a, like a, a policy kind of argument, is that first, this um, 
it may shield unlawful conduct. As we were just discussing, the government may be doing things that are illegal or unconstitutional, and then essentially covering them up. Uh, it also prevents defense attorneys from then making a fruit of the poisonous tree argument. You can't make that argument if you don't know what happened in the first place. Secondly, and this is something I really want to highlight because I think it's not stressed enough, it can lead to coercion of consent to search. If I'm local law enforcement and I've been asked by the DEA or Homeland Security or ICE to find a reason to pull somebody over and then develop probable cause to do a search, I would submit that the odds that the officer is going to walk away without getting consent to search seem pretty slim, perhaps. And so I do think there's a risk that people who are being subjected to parallel construction could be pressured into giving consent that in a way that's actually coercive. Thirdly, there's a risk of perjury by officers at trial, and a couple of judges have started to highlight this in their in their opinions, where again, if, if you're the officer who's been asked to do something pretextual in order not to reveal that you got a tip from some other source, there's a risk of them not telling the whole truth when you get to the trial stage or in affidavits, things like that. It also creates Brady problems. If you're the defense attorney, you know, you can't be pushing the government to give you more Brady materials from some investigative source if you don't know that source existed. So if I don't know that the government has some gigantic phone records program, um, I can't actually go and, and ask, really ask them to dig for a potential exculpatory material from that program because I don't know it exists. So here's where I interject with personal experience. So the problem that 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 they ran into with me is, you know, they were trying to use state secret information so that they can, you know, they obviously they couldn't come after me. And this is speaking from experience. So what they do is they uh, like I told the judge, hey, he's asking me questions he already knows the answer to. Why is he doing that? He's got all these secret subpoenas. He pulled my files from the government. I said this in court. Why? Because that's what they do. I wasn't supposed to know. See, if I was just an average Joe and I had the power of the federal and state agency, and I'm giving you my example so that you can understand the other examples uh, <laughs> or what's going on right now. If I didn't know and I answered the questions, let's say um, they're like, hey, uh, where did you live on, you know, November 1st, 1952? You know, who's going to freaking remember that? And then you put down, I don't know, I lived on 101 Cherry Lane. Oh, she lied. That's a violation. That's perjury. And you're like, so if you knew, why did you ask? How am I supposed to remember? I don't even have that. And if you say, I don't remember, I think you're trapped. This is what they do in order to entrap you. And if you don't know, you can't ask for information. Let's say they have an audio clip of you saying, um, something like, yeah, you know, make the drop over here, but you're talking about, I don't know, dropping a song or dropping this and they've got that audio clip from somewhere, but you don't know that they have an illegal surveillance program and, you know, they have only that conversation about the drop and where you're going to have it. But the previous phone call was talking about, I don't know, a Doors, uh, you know, album or something. So they keep that exculpatory evidence, right, of a Doors album. And they just go, oh, they said to drop it there. And it's, you know, uh, to break on through to the other side or whatever. You know, they could just use it and manufacture a story, but hide the evidence. Now, if you don't know that they have been surveilling you, how are you going to ask for that information? You can't. So they have the exculpatory evidence and they're hiding it. Remember almost kind of like, like with the Alvin Bragg thing where they came in and they were like, but they have exculpatory evidence and it's like, oopsies. Yeah, it's because people are watching. This is how you grab them. If you're paying attention to the minute details of what's being reported, you'll understand that right now there has been over, over I, I would say that there's like what? It's uh, seven years of 
parallel construction against President Trump and anyone around him. And they've had the assistance of many people in his close circles to get it done too. And it's an ongoing battle of spy versus spy. Listen to this tidbit though. Uh, it also creates potential inequalities in the justice system. Uh, anecdotally, we sort of found in our report that if you're a defendant with a savvy defense attorney who knows about this practice and is really willing to push and make the motions, say to the government, what did you did? What did you do? Say to the judge, you know, please get the prosecution to go check with the intelligence agencies or whatever the case might be. If you have an attorney who knows about this and is willing to push hard, you may get your case dismissed or you may get a more favorable plea offer. Whereas if you're a defendant whose attorney is not as clued in, you don't have those advantages. And so it creates these inequalities in the justice system. And lastly, this is something I've, that has been raised with me. I haven't seen it ventilated in a motion, but it's worth thinking about, is ineffective assistance of counsel under the Sixth Amendment. If you're an attorney and you don't know fundamentally where the evidence against your defendant came from, can you really provide effective assistance? Can you challenge these things effectively? So an argument that might be worth thinking about. So what could the government potentially be hiding? Well, something I want to really stress is potentially anything. I think because of the original Reuters coverage, which focused on the use of DEA tips to hide phone records programs, information they might have been getting from the NSA, other things that are really intelligence focused. We forget that parallel construction could be used to hide just an ordinary old Title III wiretap warrant that the government just doesn't want to reveal yet for whatever reason. Could be used to hide a human source. Could be used to hide something from a foreign government, a foreign intelligence agency. It could be used to conceal just about anything. And so, for example, when you're making motions, you might not <coughs> just want to focus on the possibility that something came from the US intelligence agencies. But if we're going to talk about intelligence surveillance, which I think we should, there are a couple of things to think about because, again, I think that defense attorneys tend to focus on these phone records programs because that's what was first revealed as part of these programs and that's what's often associated with this secretive part of the DEA that we're going to talk about in a moment. Um, and the thing I really want to highlight is something called Executive Order 12333, which I'm going to get to in a moment because it's sort of the biggest and shadowiest of, of these authorities. I think it's the most poorly understood, but there are others. One I'm not really going to talk about very much is Section 702 of the Foreign Intelligence Surveillance Act. Section 702 is a provision that underpins some very large warrantless government surveillance programs lead to data that can then be warrantlessly searched. Um, it has been very well described in other places, uh, and so I would refer you to those. You can find a lot of information on the web. I want to talk about some things that are where it's harder to find the information, but where I think those things might actually be more likely to be leading to tips that lead to an investigation. So let's talk about 12333. 12333, as I said, it's an executive order. It's not a law. It was issued by President Reagan in 1981, amended most recently under George W. Bush in 2008. So if you're looking at it, make sure you're looking at the updated version. It governs basically everything the intelligence community does. The intelligence community is 17 different intelligence agencies um, that, and ranging from the FBI and the DEA to the National Security Agency, um, the CIA, and a bunch of others, DHS. 12333 basically governs most of what they do, including surveillance. And we know from the Snowden documents, those documents that were leaked by Edward Snowden back in 2013, that 12333 is the legal underpinning for most of what the NSA does. And so some things that have been revealed in the press include things like the NSA vacuuming up billions of text messages daily, billions of location updates daily from cell phones around the world. So we talk about 12333, talking about these big programs, lots of data, potentially huge source of information to the government, and nobody knows very much about it. 
Um, the government thinks that if you've been surveilled under 12333, it does not need to give you notice. They've said this to the New York Times. I think it's come out in a couple of places since then. And so defendants are not going to be getting notice of this from the prosecution. Uh, so it's really subject to very little, if any, judicial oversight. Congress has also not been holding hearings on 12333, so it's subject to little congressional oversight as well. Basically, the executive branch is doing potentially enormous things in the dark with very little outside transparency. One thing I really want to highlight that I think everyone should read, there was a State Department whistleblower named John Napier Tai, who wrote um, an op-ed in the, in the Washington Post in 2014 that I think has not been looked at sufficiently, where he basically points out um, that there are several other authorities that the intelligence agencies have that don't allow them to just scoop up all the audio of US people, the phone calls of people in the US, domestic phone calls. And he basically says, 12333 contains no prohibition on that, which I think we should all take as code for. 12333 could be used as the basis for a lot of domestic spying on a lot of people for whom there's no probable cause to believe they've done anything wrong. And so if you have an investigation and you just don't understand how it started, you might not necessarily want to look at some of these programs that have been more reported. You might want to look at this bigger, scarier 12333. Some motions to check out. Unfortunately, none of these have led to disclosures in these cases, but I do think they represent uh, some, some good models for arguments that you could make. I'm not going to read these off. I will say that in O'Shaughnessy, which stemmed out of the Maller Wildlife Refuge occupation in Oregon, if people remember that from a couple of years back, um, a right-wing group took over this wildlife refuge and occupied it for about 40 days, as I recall. Um, it was prosecuted in part as a domestic terrorism investigation. And so one of the attorneys in the case said, well, you're calling this terrorism. Tell me, that sounds intelligency. Tell me, government, if you got data under 12333. And as I'm going to talk about in a moment, the government gave a kind of non-answer answer, but they did get the judge to tell the prosecution to go ask, or they basically got the prosecution to agree to go ask the intelligence agencies what they had done. Prosecution came back and said, well, nothing. Um, but at least that's a sign that you can potentially get a judge to direct the prosecution or at least get the prosecu prosecution to agree to go do something to check and see what was done rather than maintaining potentially a state of kind of willful ignorance. So let's leave aside 12333, although again, I think it's something we should all be thinking about and talk about those phone records programs because they were a, a key part of, they're a key part of this. And one reason is that when we talk about the DEA Special Operations Division, which we know has been involved in parallel construction, the Special Operations Division historically has been associated with access to phone records, potentially gathered by the NSA. There are a couple of phone records, um, there are a couple of laws that authorize the collection of phone records of people in the US on a very large basis. The most famous of these, Section 702 of the, excuse me, Sections 215 of the USA Patriot Act, if you remember back when the Snowden leaks first happened, uh, Stone revealed that the NSA was getting records of all U.S. domestic calls from Verizon. So a huge volume of data, potentially very revealing of people's social circles, their professional circles, their private lives. Um, the government is now not allowed to get all of that en masse, but what they can do is get it through court orders. And so they, we know they got 151 million records uh, of U.S. calls in 2016, that number jumped to 534 million phone records last year, um, as disclosed by the intelligence agencies. I'm not aware of any defendant getting notice uh, of having been surveilled in this way, of having their data collected under under 215, um, or an associate's data collected under 215. So this may be something to think about asking about. 
there is a drug prosecution equivalent of 215 uh, that remains unchanged and that we really don't know much about. Um, I don't think anyone has really investigated whether that could be used for bulk collection of the kind that Stone revealed, just different legal authority. There have also been some really, really large DEA phone records programs. One of those has now ostensibly ended. They say they've stopped it, and that was where the DEA was collecting records of all calls between the U.S. and 116 other countries, so basically almost all uh, U.S. international communications. They say they've stopped that. What they haven't said they've stopped is something called the Hemisphere Program, which came out again through freedom of information requests as well as litigation. Um, and that's where the DEA gets access to a large but unknown volume of AT&T call records. Um, so again, this could be a very large phone records program. And phone records are something that it sounds simple, but first we don't know what that includes. Doesn't include location data. It at least includes probably who's calling whom, when and for how long. And that stuff can be data mined um, for a way, in a way that is potentially very revealing about what people do with their lives. So while we're on the subject of phone records, let's talk about the DEA Special Operations Division. The SOD, as we document in our report, again, Dark Side, Human Rights Watch, um, facilitates intelligence sharing between the intelligence agencies and law enforcement. And so it's best known, I think, for doing what's called a tip and lead system. The DEA SOD gives a tip to local law enforcement or other federal law enforcement. It can be as simple as, you know, look for a white car at this intersection at this time. So that's how they funnel illegally obtained information to make it legal. We need legal channels. It's almost like the thing that I was talking about, the Hunter Biden laptop. Uh, when it was turned in, the FBI had it, but they wanted to protect the source or not show where it came from. So what happened? Months later, they raided Keith Abloh, the psychologist who was giving ketamine to Hunter Biden at Plum Island and supplied hookers, or maybe the hookers were the assistants, who knows, whatever, right? And put him up in rooms with that. And so what they did was they raided him. And if you remember in early 2020, there were articles and they said, you know, um, uh, you know, raid conducted and uh, we found Hunter Biden's laptop. So this is how they introduce evidence the way they want. Just pointing that out. So let's just take a quick musical interlude while I walk you through the warrantless search and surveillance of President Donald J. Trump. Here we go. Making more noise, turn me up or turn me down, it's your choice. Black lives only matter when they got a corpse to exploit. Cause the media made millions off the protests for George Floyd. That's called ad revenue, they make cash selling you. All the crap in the ads while they broadcast news. Ooh, the network full of liars got investment capital in segments sponsored by Pfizer and the freedom fighters. I feel like the left just plants them to infiltrate the right. It's extensive planning, then it happens overnight. It's impressive branding. Make a million off of shirts that say, let's go branding. It's a cash grab, everyone's a lab rat. Amazon made billions of dollars from sanitizer and black mass and that's that Funny how the terrorists who attack always come from places that are oil rich and have gas Democrats, they don't give a damn, what is this about? Our military trapped in the Middle East, can't get them out Heroes are the ones who had the constitution written down Y'all aren't using hero while describing Kyle Rittenhouse One cent, two cent, three cents, four We get less and they get more By insult since we were born They want money We want Dirty more. dollars fill their pockets
dirty money. Well, money, 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 follow the money or follow the facts. So I published an article, which I coined Spyfall, where I walk people through significant events. This is how they plotted. Remember, it's almost like going through Hunter Biden's email, but this way I have to put legally sourced information. I mean, parallel construction, right? Right. This is what we're talking about. Legally sourced information together so that you can see the bigger picture. So when President Trump was leaving the White House, he exited, left a letter, said, hey, Nara, these are the people you're going to be in contact with. These are the people that are going to be giving you files and stuff. There we go. Now, let's just put a little parentheses here that the president of the United States has the power to declassify anything he wants. It's executive privilege. Done. That's like well known throughout our history through legal, you know, happenings in the past, Marbury for one, and so on. So he provides this letter and gave it to the 10th archivist of the United States, who is going to go down in history as the worst archivist ever that betrayed his oath in part. Weaponizing the agency that's supposed to be a repository of information. It's ridiculous. So he writes a letter through his own blog. I should actually show it to you guys. Give me a second. Let me pull up his blog so we can see it together so you can see what he wrote. I'm going to read it out to you. Let me share the, the screen. And let me zoom in so that you guys can see it. So he puts it together and tells the president that he will be retiring. The letter is actually being published in 2022 after it was completed. Now, again, methods, right? We, we've talked about this before. So allow me to read his letter. After 12 years as the 10th Archivist of the United States, I have decided to retire effective mid-April 2022. Why the rush, my friend? As I wrote to President Biden, it has been an honor of a lifetime to serve my country once more, this time to lead the executive branch agency charged with ensuring that the American people can hold their government accountable from, past, from the past accessing the records of our country. Now, there's two things here that could be at play. Mr. Archivist made a very bold statement. So how do we want to see it? Words, musical frequencies, frequencies, and pictures paint a very different story when put together, separately, or coupled. Now let's take this statement. People can hold their government accountable and learn from the past by accessing the records of our country. That is not the primary goal of the archivist or NARA. It is there to learn from our history and understand it, but holding them accountable, that's very interesting. See, under the guise of being chief, well, head archivist, there's a lot of archivists, but this is like the archivist. This guy was appointed by President Barack Hussein Obama in 2009. He has engaged in what we would call modern book burning. He, this is how you change history. You burn the books. And we've been seeing history change before our eyes too. 
They've been taking down monuments, recalling versions of history that don't exist, but only in their mind. But at the same time, what was the agency that opened up the can of worms and allowed the FBI to segue in? That's right, NARA. Because here's what else happened with this archivist. Well, when President Trump was leaving on the chopper in 2021, bye-bye. A very weird thing was said by the 10th archivist of the United States of Washington Post. As I stood there watching him leave the White House, I saw a white banker box, and I'm like, hmm, wonder what's in that. Who says that? Obviously, someone obsessed with banker boxes that's in love with their job, that's an archivist, right? But they don't say it like that. So that's 2021. In 2021, between January and February 2021, earwigs were happening in Mar-a-Lago. Oh, we need to up the surveillance system. Oh, we need to fix things. Oh, you do. Well, here's a company that's been lying dormant since 2008 that started hiring in March of 2021, a company called CMN. LLC that actually stands for the initials of the owner. Fantastic people serve their country as contractors under Mission First Flag, doing a lot of stuff like data collection, intelligence gathering, surveillance system, non-attribution access, you know, stuff like that, simple things. And what's funny is, is that it was in around March that someone from President Trump's camp in Mar-a-Lago, Secret Service decided, all right, let's file with DHS for this money so that way we can get that funded and do a build-out in Mar-a-Lago. That's great. So on the 17th of August, 2021, that company that has been around since 2008 but has received absolutely no federal contracts since its inception, except for now, in 2021, gets awarded one of the most high-profile surveillance build-outs at Mar-a-Lago even though they haven't been receiving federal dollars under CMN LLC before. That's all happened in 2021. And suddenly, in January of 2017, the J6 committee, oh, which by the way, I forget to mention, as of 2021, the amount of visions that SAAs and OHAs have had with the archivists well, the, the former 10th archivist of the United States as he resigned, in April, boo-hoo, they've been exchanging information. It's almost as if the J6 committee weaponized NARA in order to go after President Trump. Weren't they complaining about emails and burner phones and this and that? We need something on him. Give it to us. And since the IG of NARA has these really broad powers that were more most recently enacted, well then, they could do what they want. So lo and behold, in 2022, the J6 committee received confirmation since they've been working like, you know, for the past year with DHS, FBI, and DOJ, they all work together with NARA, that they, that NARA confirmed to the J6 committee that they received 15 boxes of presidential records from Mar-a-Lago that had been improperly removed from the White House. All righty then. And then NARA, in an unusual act, publicly confirmed news reports that some Trump White House records had been ripped up and then taped back together. <laughs> Sounds like stale bait to me. 
And then in February, a lot happened. But the most significant of them all is that NARA asked the DOJ to investigate President Trump's handling of White House records. And then the House Oversight and Reform Committee expands the investigation into former Trump's White House records, requesting new information from NARA about classified materials that President Trump allegedly took to Mar-a-Lago after leaving office. Mm-hmm. As well as the records that Trump has allegedly ripped up while he was in the White House. So what changed? Well, CMN LLC had already started to build out. And the surveillance that they installed, they wiretapped Mar-a-Lago to have audio, visual, and data bifurcations, all headed to the regional office in Florida, FBI offices in Florida in a very secure facility, and also sending all that information. <laughs> this is why CMN LLC, using money from DHS, Purchasing through, well, I'll leave that. I don't think I can mention that. Let's just leave it. So what happens is they see that there is surveillance. The surveillance footage, they see that there's boxes being put here. So they're like, this is an excuse. This is how we're going to do it. But we can't tell them that we've illegally wiretapped Mar-a-Lago and monitoring their surveillance and housing all this data in a place in Fairfax, Virginia for high value targets. We can't say that the former president of the United States is an HVT, right? We can't say that. So here's what we're going to do. We're going to issue a national security letter, which is a subpoena with a gag order attached to it. And we're going to serve it to CMN LLC and say, uh, we've received notice from an aide, which was widely reported, by the way, that there may be some shenanigans. So now you need to give us our, the surveillance footage. So now they've just covered their tracks that they had been illegally you know, surveilling Mar-a-Lago through Mar-a-Lago's own surveillance systems. Oh, interesting. And boom, that happens. And now they have stuff on the record. And immediately, President Trump receives a, his first subpoena for alleged classified documents in April of 2022. It was around April 1st that the FBI obtained CCTV footage from inside Mar-a-Lago through a national security letter type secret subpoena via CMN. And on uh, April 5th, the FBI publicly confirms that they obtained CCTV footage from inside Mar-a-Lago through, well, they didn't say through the NSL letter, but that's what happened. And then the National Archives on the 13th of April was instructed by the DOJ and uh, to, to, to just give all the documents that President Trump turned over because they need to see it and that they need to give that to the Oversight Committee and suggesting that the FBI has now begun a criminal investigation. And that was actually reported by the New York Times. You see how they do that? They got stuff. They're like, okay, that's our hook. This will allow us to issue a secret subpoena where we have more authority. We get the secret subpoena. And with that secret subpoena, because it's national security, we got to talk nukes or foreign agent or something. We could say whatever we want. Da, da, da. Well, they segue it in. This is how you cover up. Now, in May of 2022, what happened was that a grand jury investigation was confirmed, but no one knew when it started. Well, we know when it started because, ta-da, 
Didn't President Trump receive a subpoena? So we already know it was after they received the CCTV footage legally sourced after they had the national security letter subpoena based on the information that ha they have been collecting. And so then on that day that it was confirmed publicly that there was a grand jury investigation, but nobody knows when it started, NARA received a subpoena from the DOJ saying that former Trump aides are requested for interview. What? Wait, huh? Hmm. And then we go to June. FBI agents visited Mar-a-Lago, if you remember, and they asked for more documents. Why are you asking for documents? We gave it all to you. How do you know we have other documents? Um, it's called surveillance. How do you know we have other documents? It's called surveillance. Ah, see what, you, you know, FISA goes both ways, surveillance goes both ways. It's kind of like me saying, why are you asking me these questions when I already know you issued secret subpoenas and you have that information? FBI is like, hey, we need more documents. But we gave you all the documents. No, you didn't. How do you know? We just know. How do you know? We just know. <laughs> You're not spying on me. Nope. Here's a subpoena. Just give us documents. We want more documents. You see what happened right there? So then, Footage of Mar-a-Lago is constantly provided to the grand jury. Look, he's not giving us the documents. Look, you know, we have it on footage. And he's like, nope, you have everything, but we have footage. How do you know what's in there? Because we have sources and they're telling us everything. But that's a secret. Shh. And then in July, I get communications from colleagues, former ones. Hey, Tori, President Trump's about to get rolled up. Uh, we're getting a warrant issued and uh, we're going to be notifying Secret Service. And here's how the process goes. He's former president. So the people that get the notice first is U.S. Secret Service. They get a couple days notice. Secret Service needs to know what agents are coming. They need to clear them because this is still the president of the United States. And he has protection from the day he is sworn in until the day he passes. So they get notified. So like when President Trump was raided, they already knew from a couple of days earlier in order to be on ready because we don't want a shootout between the FBI and Secret Service. You see what I'm saying? Because Secret Service will initiate a shootout. Funny thing is, after I was told about this warrant is happening, I was like, oh crap. So they're getting the warrant. So within like 10 days minimum should be a, a raid. So I tell everyone and everyone comes back. Very important people are like, that's not going to happen. That's not going to happen. I'm like, are, are, am I being punked? Am I the only one? You know, these are, and I was doubting the information that I was provided. And I was like, no, I know it's solid because there's like a secret code amongst people that don't exist. So I was like, no, 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 this is correct. But guess what? On the 28th of July, CMN LLC, that was paid by your federal tax, tax dollars to build out surveillance communications and systems for the president of the United States, Donald J. Trump in Mar-a-Lago, paid by your tax dollars, ended. Now, that was key. That one contract made it all make sense. Do you guys remember when Comey said, oh, Hillary Clinton didn't mean to do bad? And, oh, you know, it's got to be intent. Well, the only reason he got caught using CrowdStrike for the mid-year review, which was also funded by the Clinton Foundation, which is super weird, and I've done articles about it, is because the contract 
of the FBI hiring CrowdStrike to help Hillary Clinton, but allegedly help the FBI find emails so that the State Department IG, you know, Linick could lie some more and pretend there's no Benghazi emails. Anyway, he paid them two days after he announced it. So that flagged in the system. So what's important is, is when you want to use, when it, it, like, for example, this company, the contract closed out. So any search that would have happened for the next 90 days in regards to Mar-a-Lago would have been down and then up. So basically payment occurs, contract ends, the federal database takes it down, puts in the completion notes and then puts it back up. So there's a hiatus of 90 days, which by then everyone's like, oh, you know, nothing's there. Comey, on the other hand, the, the agency, almost like someone did that shit on purpose, put the funding of CrowdStrike two days after he announced for Hillary Clinton. That means the, the contract that should have been closed out hadn't been closed out, so it was still on the system. So that's what happened. They just waited for the system to close out the contract on the 28th of July, hence why they waited 10 days to go raid him. Pretty simple. And that is how they did it. They spied on him again illegally. They used subpoenas attached with gag orders to find something because they have to get Trump. That's the problem. They always have to get him. And every single one of you should be asking, is this a script? Could be. How is this happening? Well, it is. And that's that. So, Tori, we have all this information. I'm pretty sure President Trump knows this. I'm pretty sure something's happening. I'm pretty sure you're kind of right. Now, let me segue of what we're going to talk about tomorrow. Well, hopefully, if I can get the documentary in pretty quick, that would be great. But I think it's important that we talk about children being trafficked. And we had Tara Lee, a whistleblower testify. And I think we should take a look at that. On that note, post the video. I will have to bid you goodbye until tomorrow. Please enjoy this segment of truth, a rare occurrence in the halls of the Capitol. God bless. Our final witnesses, uh, Ms. Rodas is recognized for five minutes. Good afternoon, Chairman McClintock, Ranking Member Japal, and distinguished members of the committee. It is an honor to be here. I thank you for the invitation to share my testimony. My goal is to inspire action to safeguard the lives of migrant children, including the staggering 85,000 that are missing. Today, children will work overnight shifts at slaughterhouses, factories, restaurants, to pay their debts to smugglers and traffickers. Today, children will be sold for sex. Today, children will call a hotline to report they are being abused, neglected, and trafficked. And we don't know if they're going to get the help they need. For nearly a decade, unaccompanied children have been suffering in the shadows. And I have to confess, I knew nothing about their suffering until 2021, when I volunteered to help the Biden administration with the crisis at the southern border. As part of Operation Artemis, I was deployed to the Pomona Fairplex Emergency Intake Site in California to help HHS 
Office of Refugee Resettlement reunite children with sponsors in the United States. I thought I was going to help place children in loving homes. Instead, I discovered that children are being trafficked through a sophisticated network that begins with recruiting in home country, smuggling to the U.S. border, and ends when ORR delivers a child to a sponsor. Some sponsors are criminals and traffickers and members of transnational criminal organizations. Some sponsors view children as commodities and assets to be used for earning income. This is why we are witnessing an explosion of labor trafficking. Now, whether it's intentional or not, it could be argued that the United States government has become the middleman in a large-scale, multi-billion-dollar child trafficking operation that is run by bad actors seeking to profit off of the lives of children. As for me, my interest is the safety of the children. I do not view this as a political issue. I view this as a humanitarian issue. I assure you, my motives are the highest and best. I want the children protected. So I want to tell you some of what I witnessed personally at the Pomona Fairplex. I saw vulnerable indigenous children from Guatemala who speak Mayan dialects and cannot speak Spanish. That means they cannot ask for help in English. They cannot help for, ask for help in Spanish. They become captives of their sponsors. I have sat with case managers as they've cried to tell me the horror of what has happened to children as they make the journey to this country. I saw apartment buildings where 20, 30, and 40 unaccompanied minors have been released. I saw sponsors trying to simultaneously sponsor children from multiple ORR sites at one time. I saw sponsors using multiple addresses to obtain sponsorships of children. And I saw numerous cases of children in debt bondage and the child knew they had to stay with the sponsor until the debt was paid. Realizing that we were not offering the children the American dream, but instead putting them in modern day slavery with wicked overlords was a terrible revelation. A terrible revelation. These children are a captive victim population with no access to law enforcement or knowledge of their rights. They are extorted, abused, neglected. And that is why I blew the whistle in 2021. I witnessed firsthand the horrors of child trafficking and exploitation. My life will never be the same after what I saw. But I have hope because I'm counting on you. It's my hope that you'll take action to end this crisis, to safeguard the lives of, most of these vulnerable children. People have asked me, you know, what can be done? What would you suggest? Well, first, I think HHS's number one priority is oversight. They must commit to oversight, transparency, and accountability. If I could wave a magic wand, this, I believe, could be quickly solved by experts in the IG community. There is a Pandemic Analytics Center of Excellence, or the PACE, as we call it. I believe if data analysts at the PACE could look at the data, children could be rescued, criminals could be prosecuted, if the PACE had access to this data, it shows where the children are and who has them. I think also we need to change the culture of speed over safety. Speed is the wrong performance measure when dealing with children. We need to revamp the vetting process of sponsors and have case managers 
who have investigative backgrounds, data analytics backgrounds, some certified fraud examiners. And I think we need to reimagine a system where the sponsor is the accountable party. Sponsors should be required to report to ORR. And lastly, stop retaliating against whistleblowers. Stop retaliating against the people who are trying to tell the truth to save the children. While a fool continues in his folly, and HHS needs to be wise to care for these children. Do you guys remember the plane full of kids that came and landed in the middle of the night in New York and they called the police and they stopped and they didn't know who was in charge of this bus that was ushering unnamed faceless children in the middle of the night? Oh, and then it turned out to be DHS. Indigenous children that don't speak Spanish taken from Mayan tribes. That should tell you everything you need to know for now.